Welcome to the We Need to Talk About Whiteness podcast. I'm your host, Miriam Francois, and to all of our listeners, thank you for joining us. This is a space where we explore the meaning of whiteness in the conversation of race and racism, and as the structure pertains to different areas of our lives. Why whiteness? Well, very simply, because as someone racialized as white myself, I want to explore the meaning and impact of whiteness at our current juncture. What does whiteness mean and does it matter? Every episode, I'm joined by a guest who offers unique insights into these questions and many more. Today, I'm joined by an award-winning poet and a published writer from Leeds, whose work disrupts common understandings of history, race, knowledge, and power, particularly when it comes to Muslims, gender, and violence. She's the author of a poetry collection, Post-Colonial Banter, co-author of the anthology, A Fly Girl's Guide to University, Being a Woman of Color at Cambridge and Other Institutions of Power and Elitism, co-essayist in I Refuse to Condemn, Resisting Racism in Times of National Security, and the recently published Cut from the Same Cloth. She's also the host of her very own Breaking Binaries podcast. So Hema Manzoor Khan, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Happy to be here. Great. Well, first of all, I want to say, you know, I know it's been a super tough year for a lot of people, but I particularly feel for artists and performing artists, poets like yourself, how have you coped through all of this? I appreciate that. Yeah, I mean, it's been weird. I think, to be honest, I think I've lost a lot of confidence. I think doing online stuff is great. It's fine. It's, you know, alhamdulillah, I've been, you know, able to keep, keep things going. But I think I just feel like I've lost so much connection. I know we all have to some degree, but I think I just doing things in person and build you know I think so much of art and creativity is building spaces and conversation and and you have you have that kind of question mark over what might come out of a space and I think I really yeah I miss that a lot I bet yeah Yeah, that's what I mean I hear that a lot from you know any performers really and I think that that connection to the audience like you say is is so critical but you know we can't have you lose your your uh, your confidence it's uh, important voices we need them (laughs) out there so um I guess I wanted to ask you first of all um did you always want to be a poet how did that journey come about yeah, no, not at all. Um, have no, had no real interest in poetry. Um, I think at school and stuff, I just thought, didn't really get it. Like, okay, we have to do it. Don't, don't really get what's going on here. And um, I think for me, it was, um, I watched a lot of like slam poetry online. And I, in my head, I really distinguished between like page poetry that we did at school and like slam and kind of that history of like hip hop in the US and and very like, very racial kind of politics um, kind of uh, art. And so mm. it was when I was, it was actually when I was studying my undergrad at Cambridge, um, I was, to be honest, having a really tough time. I was quite depressed. And the college like, counsellor that I went to see, she was the person who said to me, um, you know, what's something that you've always wanted to do that you don't think you can do? And I was just like, okay, let me disclose this big secret passion. And I was like, you know, I love watching this slam spoken word stuff online but obviously I you know I just that is not for me that's not me at all Mm. and so she was the one who said okay I'm gonna she said she signed me up anonymously to this open mic night and she sent me and she said you don't have to tell anybody you can just go on your own um and you know I obviously had to write so I was like oh my god okay I have to write a poem (laughs) yeah going and and it changed everything yeah that you know performing in front of people it was there was something so I think that first time it was it was I think it was so specific to that context but it was the idea that for for three whole minutes in this context of you know I've been experiencing a lot you know maybe we'll talk about but a lot of sort of elitism a lot of like silencing erasure etc it was like for three minutes I get to speak and everybody has to listen and that Mm. might sound quite funny but it was it really was quite powerful for me and yeah I got hooked basically I got hooked and um you know I realized oh actually I can do it that was a huge you know game changer as well that it wasn't wasn't something completely out of my depth so yeah funny well, story we're, really we're very grateful to the counsellor for signing you up then yeah, <laughs> um yeah. so introducing you was not without its perils um because in a recent essay you say I am not fem I'm not a feminist socialist radical or islamist I am <laughs> not <laughs> um oh sorry I was gonna uh, jump ahead there um I'm not a poet, performer, writer, commentator, or activist. I'm not an example. I'm not a subject of your research. I am merely a question. Um, so 
I guess I wanted to ask you when who who is Suhaima? Who are you? How do you reply to that question? <laughs> so I think yeah, I think the reason that I sort of have have written that and the reason I sort of as a visibly Muslim woman in the world, you know, I think there's it just feels to me that everybody wants to identify very quickly um, where exactly you belong and what what box to put you in, right? And mm. um, I think we all experience this to some degree, but I think the tropes and the very clear cut binaries that come for Muslim women mean that you have you know you have milliseconds, right, to like <laughs> to speak, to say something, to prove yourself. And I think there's just so much pressure and demand and. All, I feel like every label that you might use kind of carries an implication. So if I say I'm a poet, I feel like it's like, oh, okay, so she's one of those creative ones. She's not one of those sort of extreme, like she's not one of those mm. ones who's really super into Islam. If I'm like, oh, you know, like I'm a feminist, they're like, oh, okay, so she's really not religious. Like she's not really into the whole. And if I'm like, oh, you know, I'm a really practicing Muslim, they're like, oh, okay, so she's not cool. Like don't talk. So I just feel like it's all. There's so many, and it's also subtle and it all happens so quickly. Um, and I think I just really... I hate that you know I think any of yeah. us hate that like we all, we all want agency we all want autonomy and we I think we deserve and desire to to be able to describe our experiences on our own terms and so in a way maybe a lot of my work is kind of obsessed with this question of like you know when do I get to be myself on my own terms and yeah. I think that's just a product of the world that I you know that I know in the context that I live in where you know as soon as I step foot outside I'm so aware of being read at every moment. I'm aware of being seen and perceived. And again, we all are, but I think the context that we know of that Muslim women live in today, there's just there's just so many different gazes upon us. And, it, and it's that that is like, I think battling against that to me is, is a battle against being, being fully captured, being fully kind of decided for on behalf of other people and, and just kind of retaining my own, my own sense of agency, basically. Yeah, no, I think that gaze can be deeply constraining. And I think we don't talk enough about the impact of that on the mental health of those being gazed mm. upon um, in particularly uh, rarefying ways. And I can speak to that uh, from my own experience. I found it very difficult to deal with um, uh, over, over a long period. Um, I wanted to ask you, do you identify with a tradition of radical politics? And if so, um, let me ask you the question that every Muslim gets asked, what <laughs> is a radical? <laughs> okay, I think, um, yeah, I think I do identify with the tradition of radical politics. Um, <clears throat> and so what is a radical? Um, I think, is it Angela Davis who says that radical just means grasping something by the roots? Um, I think it mm. might be her. And I think, I think, you know, the idea to me of, how you might sort of describe radical politics to differentiate it from another type of politics is for me that you're interested in yeah in the in the conditions the root causes the root causes of things I think that's how I would put it um and perhaps also for me and maybe I'm just like ad-libbing here but really in asking questions like that's something that I think is really crucial but in not sort of taking anything for granted and so mm. for me that radical tradition is also inherently like an Islamic tradition as well like I see that in the history of Islam um, you know, people have always been encouraged to ask questions, you know, not take for granted the norms of the society that you're in, not take for granted that, you know, th you know, things have to be a certain way, political structures have to be a certain way, or social norms have to be a certain way, but instead be really meticulous about figuring out, well, why exactly, and, you know, who exactly benefits from this, and is that, is that just, is that right, you know, how, where does that sit, and I think, so I think there's something there about just, um, you know, thinking for yourself, basically, you know what I mean? Not, not just sort of accepting the way things are. Um, yeah. But yeah, I don't know if that's a, yeah. Yeah, well, that leads me nicely to a core question of the podcast, which is what does whiteness mean to you? And what mm -hmm. do you think is the most radical interrogation we can make of it? Wow, okay, great question. Um, I think whiteness to me, I mean, this is so tricky, but I think if I'm trying to simplify it, Whiteness is just a word, it's a name that we give to describe a series of historical processes. Um, and that, to me, that includes, you know, you can't talk about whiteness without talking about colonialism, you can't, can't talk about whiteness without talking about capitalism. And it is these series of processes which, I think in a nutshell, whiteness basically describes the value or the lack of value that we give to different human lives. So it's, it's an invention, uh, it's an invention of European colonialism. Mm. And I'd say it's sort of, um, is this thing that is, is so ubiquitous, it's so everywhere that we don't really see it. It's so part of how we, you know, 
move through the world, how we think about people and each other, that we also have become, it's sort of, it's difficult to expose as well. And I think that's why it's almost tricky to talk about whiteness because it's like, we all know what it is. We all know, you know, it's kind of, it's so much a part of our lives and our world, but at the same time, it's so invisible. Um, so in terms of how best to interrogate it or like what is the best way to sort of expose or think it through. Um, yeah, what's the, what's the most critical, subversive, important interrogation that we can make of this structure, which ultimately is an oppressive one, which has a really detrimental impact on people's lives. Like these are concrete yeah. things, you know? Um, yeah, I think first and foremost, it is revealing it, right? Because I think something that happened in the world that we live in, lots of things are naturalized to us, you know, so it's like, we just take things as they are. And I think whiteness, you know, whiteness is not like rivers and mountains, right? Like it doesn't have, it's not just something that's naturally in the world. It's something we've constructed, human beings have constructed. And so for me, actually, a crucial start point, at least, is naming and revealing that. So being able to point out that, you know, even something as simple as like, why is Black Lives Matter such a controversial statement to make? It's not controversial, but it's because we all, it speaks to revealing that structure that is whiteness. It speaks to naming this idea that actually human lives do are attributed with different value and that is racialized and, that, and it relies on a hierarchy where at the top, there are white people who are racialized in a way that means they are valuable. And at the bottom, there are black people who are racialized in a way they're not. And there's many different contexts where we might kind of talk about different things with that, but it, I think, that it's that idea of where you can reveal it, where you can show it. I actually think <laughs> in a way that's one of the most crucial things. Um, mm. And then I think moving on from that, obviously the question is, okay, how are we dismantling it? Like how, yeah. how, because I think that's, I think it can feel trite sometimes just be like, okay, like let's, we need to like end racism mm. um, because how on earth, you know, this, this, this structure that we're talking. And actually I think what's interesting is that we talk a lot about racism, but we don't talk a lot about whiteness. And I think mm. that also speaks to the fact that we don't necessarily want to think about the root causes again of like what is racism or well, racism is white supremacy but white supremacy I think people find that so much more like oh can we not talk you know that word that's a bit of a harsh you know we're not all white supremacists mm. and I think that's interesting because white supremacy just means that there is this hierarchy in the top of which is whiteness and that you know we do live in a white supremacist world and that's not <laughs> that's not a value judgment that's just like a sort of fact and I think yeah, yeah I think that, that, so in a way, you know, you can see even just through saying that, naming that, revealing that, it is the start of, I think, quite a critical juncture and a critical conversation. Um, yeah. 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 Well, and it, interestingly, it makes me think of something you mentioned in the um, published anthology, Cut from the Same Cloth. You've got an essay in that, which I recommend everybody take a read of. Um, and you mentioned in there that during your time at Cambridge, which I'd love to hear more about, you said that you noticed a growing preoccupation with individual identities versus group structures, which I gather didn't sit well with you. Can you clarify that for me? Yeah, I guess, I guess I've been, I mean, this is something I still think about now. I think, I guess what I notice is sometimes in um, sort, of, sort of conversations around social justice, I think it comes from a really good place. I think the intention is, you know, really good. Um, but I think what can happen sometimes is that we, we begin to talk about our personal identities as if they sort of are the, the most important lens through which to talk about justice. So for example, if I was to say, look, you know, I, um, as a woman, as a Muslim, as a member of the Pakistani diaspora, um, you know, as some, you know, and kind of naming all the different um, identities that that I have, and talking about justice like that, I think is is okay. I don't think it's like harmful, but I think what it misses is that those identities are not inherent. They don't exist prior to the, <laughs> prior to the oppression, basically, that makes them exist. So, for example, actually, more more interesting than talking about the fact that I am Muslim is to say Islamophobia is the thing that makes me named Muslim in the context I live in, right? Because pe people only know that I'm Muslim because they associate all these things with Islam in the context that I live in. And that to me is more interesting and kind of more useful to talk about because then we can start saying, oh, okay, so if I experience this thing as a Muslim, you experience that thing as a Muslim, and this other person does as well, maybe we aren't just having like, per you know, bad personal experiences and, and separate moments, but maybe there's some sort of shared uh, collective thing going on here, in which case, why and so I don't know if that's a good example but I think for, mm. for me it's that it's kind of flipping the gaze a bit and going okay it's less about like who I am as an individual because that that's really kind of 
the words that we used to describe that are quite dependent on the concept. You know, if I lived 500 years ago, no one would be talking about me as Pakistani, no one would be talking about me as, you know, they might be talking about me as like a, a more from, you know, South Asia. I don't even know the word, do you know what I mean? I don't even yeah. know what context um, the words they'd be. So, yes, yeah. Sorry, yeah. Yeah, no, well, um, I was going to say that the idea of being Muslim being linked to kind of a security issue, which I think is obviously one of the major paradigms affecting yeah. Muslims today, um, is obviously conjunctural, right? It's very much a product of the, the time we find ourselves mm. in. And I'm very interested to hear whether you think that terrorist attacks, which is often what's pointed to as the justification, right, for the securitization of mm. Muslim identities. And of course, terrorist attacks are real and they, you know, kill people and maim people, including Muslims, many Muslims. But do you think that terrorist attacks are the reason Muslims as a group are considered through a security lens? Or, or do you think there is more to it? Yeah, I think that's a good question. Um, I think there is more to it. Um, I think, gosh, there's many, yeah, many directions we could go with this. So I think one thing to mm. say is that obviously like the reason that I think the reason that, that like terrorism is such an important element of the way that Muslims are constructed is because this is really about what we what we as a society um, are willing to consider as violence and not and so I think part of this is that constructing Muslims as a security threat is actually really beneficial to a world in which like the violence of capitalism is is really really terror terrorizing to so many right like thousands and hundreds of people are displaced every day through the ecological disaster of capitalism through the wars you know in the name of kind of resource depletion and and all sorts of other kind of uh, violences and so i think in a way the bigger i'd say like the bigger sort of context that then terrorism sits within is that if we're instead kind of obsessed with individual acts of violence which you know not to minimize the harm that they do have on people in any way but if we're to obsess with them and to exceptionalize them and to say that this type of violence is so unique so exceptional and can only be explained by the racial character of these people what we do is we completely decontextualize them and the world and we say you know this is the only thing that matters and there's no other violence and so to me actually like you've just said I think that constructing Muslims as a security risk is actually just really useful because it distracts us from from considering anything else which is actually a risk to security because what's actually a risk to security right is that let's just take our current context you know 10 mm. years of austerity that's a risk to security people are so vulnerable people don't have any you know resources to fall back on a risk to security is not having like a well-funded NHS that's you know we've seen how many people have died this year like you know not just by tragedy not just by accident but because of deliberate political decisions and because we don't see these things as like to do with safe, we don't think safety and security and care and well-being are part of that conversation. Instead, we talk only about kind of security as this, this really, yeah, this racialized thing. So I think, yeah, I don't know if that answers your question, but to me, I yeah. think that there is that bigger, yeah, it's that bigger context where you know somebody benefits basically. Mm, no, that's that's really interesting. I, I wanted to ask you as well. Obviously, you were at university, you were at Cambridge during the beginning of the UK decolonizing movement, roads must mm. fall, decolonize our campus, which are now present on on campuses across the UK and across the world in fact and mm. you write in your recent essay that the idea of decolonizing seemed to strike at the heart of what liberation might look like beyond achieving equality in contexts that were fundamentally unjust it was a project to historicize how the world has come to be as it was and unlearn the reasons why certain things ideas people and not others were deemed successful valuable or intellectual, as well as to restore or repair the material consequences and, and inequities caused and justified by these ideas. I thought that was a, a really brilliant description of the decolonizing movement. I'm just curious today, you know, however many years on um, mm. what your thoughts are on the decolonizing movement now. Do you mm. think, do you still believe it can achieve those goals? And, and what mm. do you make of the work that's been done so far? Yeah, good question. I mean, first off, that was an incredibly long run on sentence. So it was quite hard to hear myself. I'm like, why do I fight like that? But yeah, number two, I think, you know, it is tricky. I think we all can see how decolonizing has has really been co-opted as, as a word, as a concept, has been co-opted by the very forces that I think it was seeking to criticize. So I think, you know, even if we just look at the context of a university, um, I think it's become really, it's really jarring to see universities sort of 
using this idea that you know we are now decolonizing our curriculums almost as a, as a PR kind of as a marketing strategy right that like yeah. you know we're a decolonial university therefore give us nine thousand pounds a year and you know you come have your decolonized education and I think that's really jarring and we see it co-opted in other ways whether that's like museums or other spaces and I think for me that's disappointing but not surprising because I guess this this kind of happens like every I feel like anytime you kind of have a radical critical concept that, that's just basically a useful framework I think that that you know the, the kind of I don't know the nature of capitalism maybe is to kind of take that thing and say let me sell it back to you and mm. so I think that's something I'm seeing happen and I think you know in the last year we've obviously seen loads of um, equality diversity and inclusion stuff since George Floyd was murdered which is very ironic because you know nobody's sort of talking about n- nobody said this, nobody asked for more diversity and inclusion on the back of you know people what people are talking about is police violence and, and and white supremacy but the response somehow has been EDI and I think what's interesting there is that decolonizing is also then watered down so it's like oh oh you want to decolonize things okay so what you're saying is you want more people of color in uh you know y- you know you want more people of color in parliament or in the cabinet office and it's like hang on that <laughs> is not decolonial because to me what 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 when i'm saying it's being watered down what i mean is that what i thought was really captivating and compelling about the idea of decolonizing was that it was about really addressing a power relationship and it was saying we have to fundamentally undo something here whereas what I see happening now is that it's like let's just kind of put plasters on a problem let's just sort of build on it and um you know there's really obvious examples where it's like okay but still who are the people cleaning your building you know who's still getting the least pay you know where I think there's there's lots of material elements you know where are you still invested in uh you know uh organizations involved in kind of you know recently you know SOAS is uh, where I did my master's um and you know SOAS is like I think definitely presents itself as a decolonial space very critical etc etc and I think recently with the what was going on with the violence um in Palestine is that you know, we see how many investments the university itself has in um, companies involved in whether it's like military or occupations uh, through Israeli corporations in Palestine. And I think that's mm. just so fascinating to me that, you know, you can be directly involved in colonial settler projects and still be saying you're a decolonial space. So, you know, those kind of contradictions show to me that there is something, something has gone very awry. And, and yeah, and I think to kind of agree with the implication of your question that yeah it doesn't in fact carry that same excitement that it did for me but I I do still believe that the essence of it is you know that's what we should be striving for that kind of that the aspiration of it to me is still is still alive yeah so it's it's still it still has the seeds of potential change even if you know co-optation is maybe an inherent part of existing within Mm. a capitalist world maybe um Mm. do you um I mean, I would love to talk to you about your your time at Cambridge and your experience there, because I think um, you 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 know you mentioned being depressed when you were there. I had a very similar experience when I got there, mm-hmm. and um, it was interesting reading you in that sense that there was something about the elitism of that institution, and, and you know we 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 come from different backgrounds, but even with that, I was mm. you know very much identifying with the culture shock that I experienced. Um, in in a place where hierarchies, which in perhaps in other places are less uh, explicit, mm-hmm. <laughs> are, f- felt very explicit uh, to me, yeah. um, and, and and how difficult it was to navigate that space as someone who didn't really uh, not just feel like I didn't fit in. I didn't want to fit in. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to find a place. You know, people were like, "Oh, you'll find your people." I don't want to find my people here. <laughs> this isn't my place. Like, um, and and I and I did find uh, my my people. They were at the other university um, uh, in in Cambridge, which is a, a polytechnic, which I, I found a lot more people who who I resonated with for a variety of reasons. But I to bring it back to your you, you know your comments about Cambridge how how did you experience one of these institutions that's kind of lauded as the the epitome yeah. of of you know the height of excellence in education yeah, yeah it's interesting because I think you know initially I think you know I think what was so fascinating and, and speaking to other women of color as well who were there what was really interesting was that I think for a lot of us we'd we'd grown up internalizing obviously that narrative I think as like people who've come from immigrant backgrounds as well I think so this this huge narrative isn't that that you know you 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 come to England to give your children a good education and the Mm. pinnacle of that good education is of course Oxbridge you know how how much better can you get and so I think you kind of had this 
this it was like this, it's, it's sort of something that's not only for you but sort of deemed as like a communal thing right and like coming from a state school it was like it was a big deal it was like you know you've got into this really important place now you've sort you sort of made it right and so I think that actually if anything exacerbated and like heightened the the sort of the yeah the difficulty of it because in reality I think for me the first to be honest the first thing interestingly for me that that really I found difficult with was just the fact that you know, I, there were so few people from state schools and mm. those the, lots of them who were had been to grammar schools, which, you know, I was kind of adamant that that's really not the same thing. And like this is a very different social context. Yeah. Um, and I think that was just in in the sense that I think that was something I was so passionate at that time. And, you know, I still am. And, you know, it says so much about educational inequities. But I think that was really for me the first thing where I was like, oh, so hang on everybody here is like from a very specific um, kind of background of at least economic capital, but also social capital. And then mm. the second thing was that, you know, it just, well, and this is for me what sort of politicized me and particularly when it comes to race was just that I didn't have a choice, whether or not I wanted to think about it. Um, and I think this is why maybe in another university context, I could have could have ignored race a little bit more. I could have kind of been, I don't know, less aware of it, but I think I was, I was, you know, I was literally the only person wearing a hijab in my college. And like, there was a couple of other, um, you know, handful of black and brown people. Um, but it was just that you you know, you suddenly realize, oh, people are coming, you know, what I was saying at the beginning about the ways people perceive you, the conversations people presume that you want to have, the conversations they presume that you can't have, mm. um, just all these, this sort of baggage that you didn't bring with you, other people have brought it with them, but it's, it's, it's being offloaded onto you. And I think that was just like, I think you know you're so young you're 18 19 and you're trying to navigate and understand like all of the educational stuff and then at the same time there's just so much else going on and then even in the educational stuff you know I was studying history and it was like a very specific type of history that we were looking at right and I remember even in my first essay like I remember crying after my first supervision because my supervisor said to me oh you know Sahami you've done something that nobody's ever done in in, in, the, in an essay here and I was like oh wow amazing like what have I done and he said you haven't mentioned a single politician in an essay about politics and I felt, I felt really crushed but actually I think looking back on that I think that speaks so much to the fact that for me politics isn't about great men and about <laughs> personalities you know it's always yeah. about you know these these bigger narratives and discourses and processes and so I think you know that you know there was also this pressure to think in a certain way write in a certain way yeah and I remember um just a, a quick one I remember um you know asking one of my um teachers you know how can I improve my grade like how can I get myself up to the next level and yeah. uh, you know he said he said very obviously to me he, just, he said quite honestly that you know you just need to write more like those white men that you don't like and I was just like oh, wow. wow like what does that what does that mean because that you're really saying so much but but you're not you're not you're not saying it but you're really saying a lot about you know what does it mean for a system to exist where what is deemed valuable clever intelligent um like knowledgeable is actually just a, a kind of a form of I would say quite egotistical writing like the really what I was being asked to write is like write very arrogantly and write with a without I think you know there's no interesting kind of like com a conversation for the sake of understanding it very much felt like what we were being taught to do was write and think um to win Right. Like yes. I think it's, it's yes. that very parliamentarian style of like, yes, you're just you're just trying to win the debate. You're not trying to think you're not trying to come to a new solution. You're not trying to come to some sort of compromise or or negotiation. It's literally just I am right. And here is my handpicked evidence to prove that I have the cleverest thesis. And so, mm. you know, to me, that's just like the antithesis of what, you know, and as a Muslim, it's the antithesis of what kind of knowledge and conversations are about. But as just a human being, it's just sort of <laughs> I didn't like you said I don't want to become like that I didn't want to and I think I still have a lot of fear about like how much of that have I internalized so, yeah. yeah yeah no and I also with the the accent I thought that was interesting that um mm. uh that the Oxbridge make a, a real effort to uh, I don't and, and no one sat me down and said you know this is how people at Oxbridge have to speak and I'm sure they didn't mm. with you either but there mm -hmm. was a kind of like unspoken thing right can we can we say it there was a, a sort of yeah. I don't know how it happens but it's there like you feel it you know it's there um which which I definitely felt was uh, one of the, the the forms of unconscious pressure. Um, so we can we can conclude from that that Cambridge radicalized you, which yep. <laughs> which is which is great to know and to note. Um, um, I wanted to talk to you about this idea of um, Muslim women achieving firsts, the first hijabi woman <laughs> yeah. to compete at the Olympics, the first hijabi supermodel, Muslim yeah. women skateboarding. Wow, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> many people have expressed frustration with a paradigm which celebrates exceptions but seems to implicitly confirm assumptions mm. um, concerning what Muslim women can and can't do. Um, 
I'd love to hear your take on this obsession with Muslim women's firsts. <laughs> yeah, I think that's, I mean, yeah, I think there's so much to say. I think, you know, one angle on it that really does, that, that, I think what it says to me more than anything is that it's just a reminder of the conditions that are attached to us being seen as human. So in order to be seen as human, you always have to go far above and beyond. Like you, can, you can't be mundane. You can't be... Um, and you can't be complex. I think the thing that I find really frustrating about these kind of firsts and these exceptional um, kind of, or, or sorry, the pressure to show the firsts and the exceptions is that also you you don't get to tell the truth about your life. Like, I think it's really difficult to have a conversation about, for example, um, like say violence or harm that Muslim women do experience at the hands of Muslim men, because if, as soon as you want to say something like that, you'll put, you'll put straight into the straitjacket of like, oh, okay, so you're oppressed by Muslim men. Cool, cool, cool. We know your story. We know what you're going to say. Like, this is not interesting. Mm. You're not accepted. And, and that's so unfair because it means that Muslim women don't get to, ha- we don't get to live complexly. We don't get to be multifaceted. We don't get to be contradictory. Um, and I think what's, it's just sort of, I really think it's like a violence that is so, again, so ubiquitous that we don't really get, to think about the toll it takes but I think growing up you know I, I, when, I think when I work with kids is when I see it the most where it's like somehow along the line you so into we all already you know aged I remember doing some workshops with some kids about age 12 13 so they just started high school but they already are so aware that they're deemed you know uncivilized oppressed um wow. you know not clever all these things and so they're already all every act every everything that they write every action that they take is sort of within this premise where they're, they're trying so hard to prove, you know, I am really clever. No, I'm not oppressed. Um, no, my parents don't make me wear this. Um, no, like I actually am really interested in women's rights. And it's, it's just so, it's so inorganic because it's like, this is not what, you know, what might they, what passions might they have developed on their own terms? What, <laughs> what interests might they have had? What books might they be reading? If, uh, Cause I think there's just so, so much pressure to, to disprove this this really heavy kind of stereotype that I guess exists and, and so I think it's also an outcome of that right it's an outcome of this pressure to disprove that then you know we, we're just sort of left in this weird cycle of like the highest form of liberation we can think of is just celebrating that you know a Muslim woman did something that you know people didn't expect her to do and, and, and that's not much of it like to me that's not much, like good for that person great like hope they're happy hope they're having a good time but I mean, has that made us freer? Has that, are we, you know, um, are less of our families incarcerated? Are we safer from the police? Are we safer from surveillance? Are we, are our, our countries being bombed? Are they not, like, I don't see how that's going to have any material sort of impact on our conditions. And I think this is also just to do with the larger paradigm of like representation being the sort of height of what we are told to strive for, especially in anti-racism that like, oh, you know what, Islamophobia is awful. So you know what you need to see? You need to see more hijabis on TV. And it's like, well, I don't think it's a linear. You know, I think I think there's this like there's things missing from that conversation. If 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 we're so if that's solely the the kind of remedy. So I think maybe it's a bigger thing as well of like representation has sort of become the the solve all where mm. for things that it simply can't solve. It simply can't solve things. Some things it simply will not be able to solve. Yes, I think we this podcast has explored this issue of, of representation with um, a few speakers now, and and yeah. actually, I'd love to to hear um, more from you on on this issue of you know we think of, of representation and representation is important, right? We want to see you know diverse faces. I mean, if you have a diverse society, you would hope to see diverse faces in every realm. But what do you think we lose in the obsession with representation or even the focus on representation? Yeah, I think, you know, if I'm if I'm going to be a real purist about it, I think, you know, the fact is, have it, what you see in the world is not, it's, I mean, it's so superficial, right? On like a very basic level, it's just a super, it's sort of a very weird superficial remedy to problems. So if we know that racial injustice exists, I mean, actually, I think one of the best ways to talk about it is that I think there's two ways to see the problems in, in the world, right? Like, maybe this is this is hugely reductive, but let's just say broadly speaking, there's two ways. I'm, one, I'm is liking to say, this, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> one is to say, um, you know, the problem is that the there are the wrong people in the system, right? So what we need is um, when we see police brutality, we need more black police officers. When we see, um, you know. Uh, more I don't know what whatever kind of problems you might perceive to be we need more we need more women working for xyz thing we need more disabled people working for xyz thing right and the other way I think to, to look at the problem is to say the problem is the system itself so mm. no matter how many black and brown police officers we have the problem is not that they're you know that they're doing their job it's that the job itself was created on a, on a premise of uh you know that we believe is inherently violent that we believe is, is we don't want to live in a society where we believe that people should be rounded up, punished, whatever, and social problems shouldn't be dealt with. So 
and the reason I say that as a broad sort of premise for what I'm saying about representation is that if we simply think that by having more people of color or more people from different backgrounds in positions of power, what goes completely uninterrogated <laughs> is the entire status quo, right? No, what, 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 again, what we're completely distracted from is the systems themselves. So the, to me, why I find that frustrating is that, you know, the, the more important question again is, is the root causes, it's the institution, it's like, what, why does this institution exist? And should also, it limits our imaginations because do we have to take for granted the fact, for example, that, uh, you know, parliamentary democracy is the only way we can ever run a country? Like, is that, we, you, you sort of have to take that for granted if you're then going to say the only thing that matters is having, you know, more people of colour in parliament, right? Yeah. Or if, um, you know, if, again, university is another example, right? If we sort of say the only solution is having more people of colour academics, um, more students of colour, like, I don't think either of those things is inherently bad, but I just don't think that it actually addresses the problem. Mm. And it's that, it's that like you, you somehow the problem gets misidentified and not somehow, I think it's very deliberately, the problem gets misidentified because then we don't have to deal with these much more difficult questions about how actually society has come to be structured as it is. And so then you can continue, you know, building up your border, um, you know, detention centers, building up your prisons and, and all the things that still keep people living in precarity and in violence, because you just say, oh, well, you know, look, Priti Patel, she's homosexual, you know, she's a brown woman, intersectionality, Kamala Harris, again, you know, look, woo, there goes feminism. And I think it's not, it's like, somehow we completely, <laughs> completely missed. It's a question of justice, right? It's like, does representation address justice? Mm. I, 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 sorry, address injustice? Yeah. probably not because only justice can address injustice and so I think mm. there's just a miss this feels like a miscommunication yeah and, and I mean I've I've wondered often when I've seen representation held up as a counter to demands for social justice whether actually sometimes it can make demands for justice harder um mm. because there's an argument being made about who's making the decisions and therefore yeah. you know um if you who are you to to ask this question yeah. um yeah. look at who's on our board um yeah, that's extremely frustrating. yeah. <laughs> yeah. um Look, it was it was fascinating to read your personal journey regarding the concept of liberation in your recent essay. Um, and specifically, I want to touch on the extent to which our faith, Islam, um, is not only offering a model or models of liberation, but that adhering to this framework remains one of the last frontiers of acceptable politics that is a boom moment can I say because <laughs> it's one I have experienced many times um that however open a setting might seem try bringing in a little Quranic perspective and the mood will change immediately mm. you say prioritizing and adhering to Islamic principles was a truly disruptive non-compliant act in the modern colonial secular world there is nothing quite so unpalatable to knowledge norms and academic institutions as prioritizing knowledge that stems from the word of Allah is secularity or the idea that religion should be cordoned off to the private sphere one facet of whiteness? Absolutely, absolutely. I think this all comes back to colonialism, doesn't it? Because even how you've just defined secularism is, is a narrative that colonialism has made about secularism. So if we just skip back a few centuries, you know, what's going on in Europe is really contradictory. So at the same time that you have a desire from governments in Europe to really limit the power of the church. They, ha they have to say that, you know, actually, um, it's going to be better if, if Christianity is, is limited to the personal conviction, right? This is, this is going to be better for everyone. But really what they mean is it's going to be better for their states because they have more power and autonomy. But at the mm. same time as saying that religion should be limited in these ways, they're also sending out Christian missionaries to be at the front of colonial endeavours. So you're sending them out to kind of get, make a foothold, basically, in, in places where you want to make geopolitical incursions and that's already fascinating because it tells us that okay the secularism isn't isn't a purist thing I think sometimes people talk about you know the fact that they believe in a secular society as a kind of like I believe in um you know it's a sort of neutral space right they believe it to be a very neutral thing and I think from the get-go we can see it was it wasn't neutral it, it had like a political agenda from the start um and interestingly you know even the ways we see secularism talked about today it's both this idea that it's something devoid of religion, but also that it's something that comes from a Christian, Judeo-Christian, Judeo-Christian Judeo um, Judeo um, history and context. Yeah. And that's fascinating too, because it's like, so 
the only thing that's left, the only kind of Abrahamic religion then that falls outside of this is Islam. And and I think Surprise. to me, the reason that, yeah, and the reason that it's linked to what you're saying about whiteness is that it's part of that racial, so the, when you're making races, which is literally what they were doing in, in, you know, in the last few centuries, creating the idea that different races exist, a big part of that that we know was that when you say, oh, whiteness and Europeans are um, intelligent, civilized, rational, you also have to say, and you are also saying, black and brown people, racialized people, people that we racialize, people from other places are irrational, they are uncivilized, they believe in superstition, they believe in magic. And so you have this value judgment then that is attributed to their knowledge. So I, I remember reading a really fascinating quote a couple of weeks ago about Lord Cromer, who was this big colonialist, basically, uh, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, he writes about um, Christianity in the East, right? So he's talking about sort of like the Arab, Arab areas where um, he says Christians there, their Christianity has stagnated because it's been surrounded um, by something like uh, by processes that are antagonistic to progress. Um, obviously, what he means is that, you know, this is a place where there's non-white, non-Europeans. And so even Christianity has become backwards there. And so the idea I think that, that's fascinating here is that it links to this making whiteness into something exceptional and superior is also about saying religion and religious belief when done by people of color is, is wrong, is, is, is dodgy, is irrational and can never really be, um, can never truly be secular because to truly be, you know, even if you think about the the kind of ideal Muslim in today's society, right? Mm. The ideal Muslim is not only, I would say, somebody who doesn't really, you know, talk about Islam, doesn't, you know, have a political opinion or, or anything like that, but also I, ideally it's somebody who's just not Muslim. And I think that's why you have this weird phenomenon of ex-Muslims, like that doesn't mm. exist for any other religion. You don't have like ex-Christians, ex-Jews. I think it's this strange fascination with that. Like, the only way to be truly acceptable, to truly be mod a modern subject is to just not be Muslim. And I think this is why, you know, what you just uh, touched on that, I think Islam is, is, it does provide something really radical and disruptive because even in anti-racist spaces, people are, you know, we can talk all day about like anti-racism and the kind of violence that Muslims face from the state and the violence Muslims face um, under surveillance and securitization. But when you actually talk about the fact that Muslims should be able to be Muslim on their own terms. You know, I've been at like conferences about decolonizing and then I've, I've been like, oh, is there a space to pray? And people get really uncomfortable because it's like, oh, so you actually, oh, you actually do believe in God. Like, oh, that's a bit weird. Like we were fine with all the stuff about like, you know, race and, and Islamophobia, but you actually want to go like worship God. Like that is a bit weird. And I think I, I can see that there's, there's, you know, as far as, because for me, what's problematic about that is that for as long as you're holding on to this notion that um, belief in God or, and I, I even hate having to say belief in God, right? Because to me, it's not, it's not like, oh, I believe in God. It's like, God, that is my truth is that there yes. is God, God is true, right? Yeah. And so, but yours in the majority. Like so wacky. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yes. You are the majority and you have been the yeah. majority for the majority of history. Yeah. Um. So it's just this weird time we live in. And I think it is absolutely linked to whiteness and coloniality and, you know, yeah, you can't do and, and like what you're saying, you can't decolonize and have a secular world because secularism is birthed from colonialism. And, and that to me is something that just we seem to miss so, so much. Yeah, no, I, I think about this a lot because I um, obviously as, as a Muslim myself, as a person of faith, I, I often think that there is so much wisdom that is carried within our textualities that can be of use. I mean, it's there for a reason, like, you know, that could be part of uh, solution making right. and, and conversations about how we improve the world and, uh, and yet is um, impermissible. It is impermissible to bring those elements into uh, a conversation, um, unless obviously there are other Muslims around, um, but, but in general, it's not considered to be a legitimate knowledge-based contribution to knowledge construction. And mm. that I think is one of the most glaring um, and undiscussed elements, uh, it seems to me, um, of whiteness. Um, before we move to the quick fire round, I wanted to ask you about the point where in the collection you say that at a certain point you decided you no longer wanted to be an answer to other people's questions. Um, and I think anyone probably from a minoritized background gets this, right? That you are the go-to person for anyone. I often say for me, you know, when I was a visibly um, Muslim woman, as in I was identifiable in public spaces as a Muslim, you know, I could be in the supermarket shopping for tampons and somebody would come and tap me on the shoulder and say, hey, um, do you mind just telling me like, why do Muslims do this? 
or I could be in the queue in, you know, at the airport and somebody would just say, yeah, so it looks really pretty, that thing, but like, why do you wear it? Which obviously wasn't intended to be rude, but I'm kind of just, I'm on on my way to somewhere and I didn't really like, do I, do I have to? But yes, you have to, because if you don't, you're like a bad person. And I don't want to be a bad person because then it's not just me being a bad person. It's all Muslims are bad people. Anyway, so I wanted to ask you, how do you, how do you balance the fact that obviously in conversations around race, racism, whiteness, equality issues in general, there has to be a dialogue, right? We do have Mm. to have spaces, you know, I've had many um, white people say like, oh, I I, I feel so uncomfortable. Like, I don't know if I can ask anything. People bite my head off if I do. And and I I empathize with that too. Like sometimes people have really genuine questions and they don't know where they can ask them. And Google isn't always your friend. I don't agree with that. Um, So how do you balance it? How do you balance not being this, you know, answer to other people's questions, but also engaging in a way that does help to further understanding? Yeah, I think, yeah, to be honest, I think this, you know, this becomes a really personal question for everyone, right? Because I think it's also really about your own well-being as well, because on a very, like, just selfish personal level, I think I've seen so many people burn out just from be from, from this labour, really, of, you know, it's educative work that you're doing and engaged yeah. in explaining processes you're explaining you're kind of providing tools to others to understand the world that they're in and you know that's something I'm passionate about that's you know I'm, I'm all about that but at the same time like I have to live and I have to rest and I have to you know like have time for myself and I think what can happen and I think a lot of the especially in the moment when I was writing that essay that desire as well to not be an answer is that it's like I deserve more than that as well like I deserve to be more than simply a you know, sort of like an automated response to people and having to just live solely to sort of prove and justify and explain. And so yeah. I think I'm, I think that's really important. And, and I, and I'm willing and very willing to hold that in mind with also what you're saying about dialogue. And I think simply it comes down to trust, right? It comes down to what space are we in right now? Like, like you said, like if you're just in a queue at a shop, then no, really, that's not a space where you have to be educating, explaining, and you're not shutting down a dialogue if you're just like, you know what, mate, like I, I've got a flight to catch, like I'm in, in, in a rush, like I don't, this is not, yeah. this is not my responsibility. On the other hand, if, you know, we're in a workshop and we're, you know, discussing what is race and we're thinking about racism and you ask something and maybe I do feel slightly like, oh, this is a little bit frustrating. I've been asked this so many times. At the same time, I'm, I'm here and you're here on the basis that we're here to build trust. We're here to make mistakes. And also I think we have to be quite willing about, uh, sorry, we have to be, willing to remember that you know the things that we've learned we've learned them because we've somebody taught us somebody gave us the space and the time to make mistakes to Mm. to misunderstand and I think you know again this is where I think Islam is useful for me as a framework is that there is that we also have to have a humility with the knowledge that we have and I think sometimes the context we live in knowledge can become very like coveted where it's like if you don't understand this thing then you know what that's your fault like I've done the work and you need to go do the work yeah. and I think realistically we can't do the work on our own the work that whatever this work is that we're talking about it is collective yeah so I think it's just about holding that in dialogue with the fact that you know let's minimize the harm and and the burnout of people and I think it is often women of color who really are um kind of just uh what's the word I would use sort of I guess taken from taken from sort of repeatedly and then you know, with very little credit given and whatever else, not that credit is really the reason anyone does it, but I think that, so we've got to balance that because we, you know, if we want to build sustainable movements, we can't just be, you know, burning out. You know, I I think I see people sort of go through their twenties, they sort of like do all this stuff and then, and then people burn out and they just, you know, either they're physically or mentally really just ill and exhausted. And that's not a sustainable model. And it's linked to what we're talking about because you can't, you can't expect I think we need different models for thinking about how we're going to do racial education, how we're going to do divesting from these systems of violence. And it can't rely on solely like, and again, it can't rely on individuals either. I think we, we've come into a strange culture where like, you know, you have like racial commentators and like, and I say this with the criticality yeah. and awareness that like, I've definitely been put into a bit of a space where it's like, oh, so how makes really great comments about race. And it's like, yeah. that, how useful is that for mm. building collective movements? And what's, you know, how sustainable is that, right? Like, what, what, what does that mean for when these people disappear or when these people are, are not available? Like, what does that just mean we, we don't know how to have conversations about anti-racism anymore? So I think yes. all of that is part of the, is part of when I say like, I'm not wanting to be an answer anymore. It's really speaking to all these things. 
Mm, yeah, I mean, being a public commentator on race or religion is not a movement for change in and of right. itself. And in a culture that kind of deifies the celebrity, mm. I, I share your concern with, you know, certain figures just being called upon to comment, but it doesn't necessarily connect dots in a way that enables change to happen. On that note, um, let's go to our quick fire round. So very brief answers. Um, I know we did speak about whiteness at the beginning of this conversation, but very briefly, how do you define whiteness? It's a historical invention which makes the claim that certain people have more value, intelligence, uh, and more civilized and more important than other people. And it's the creation of race. Um, It's linked to colonialism and capitalism. (laughs) What is the root of racism? Uh, The root of racism is the creation of race. I think lots of people think that racism exists because races exist, but it's the other way around. Races exist to justify racism. Is there such a thing as a post-racial world in your view? And is that universalist ideal ever achievable or even desirable? Um, I think there has to be such thing as a post-racial world because I do believe that, you know, God can do as God wills and there's, you know, no reason that my limited imagination for the world should be imposed onto it. Um, at the same time, like, poof, it's going to take, <laughs> take a lot of undoing stuff. So I don't know what that journey will look like, but I'm willing to believe in it. Is whiteness a useful conceptual tool in conversations on anti-racism? I think so. I think we do need to talk more about whiteness because otherwise racism doesn't make sense. Like, where did it come from? And and is it just sort of this this everlasting thing that's existed for all time? No, it's not. It's because whiteness was invented and it was placed not only in the category uh, amongst other races, but at the top of a hierarchy. And that's the essence of what racism is. So I think we have to talk about whiteness. Thank you so much, Sahima. That was wonderful. Um, If people want to uh, read your work, purchase your books, is there a bookstore of choice that you'd like to refer Um, them to? Yeah, so my collection and uh, one of my anthologies is at Verve Poetry Press. And if you go to my website, which is www.sahima.com, there's links to sort of all my, anything that I've written, um, poems and etc so that's probably the best way and then yeah just don't don't buy from amazon please (laughs) (laughs) Um, and you can also follow suhaima on twitter and on instagram right yeah at the brown hijabi brilliant suhaima manzoor khan thank you so much for your time i want to say thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in to this episode of we need to talk about whiteness please do subscribe on itunes spotify or soundcloud And join us next time for more conversations on whiteness.